Michael Ray. No. Sign of the Times. Definitely not. The Batman soundtrack. Oh, Star Wars is it? Uh, no. Same coming. I like it. Ah. Sade. Hello and welcome. You are listening to Goat or Go. Comprehensive and somewhat opinionated look at the 2020 Rolling Stone 500 Greatest Albums of All Time. I'm your host, Wendy Kay. Welcome back, dear listeners. Today we're going to be covering number 497 on the list. And currently, this spot is home to a compilation album, actually, from 1985, The Indestructible Beats of Sueto, by various artists. Now, this album was also listed on Rolling Stone's list in 2012 at number 388. So Rolling Stone had this to say about the indestructible beats Soweto. The greatest album ever to be marketed under the heading World Music, this 1985 compilation of South African pop was a huge influence on Paul Simon's Graceland that still sounds jarringly fresh today. Full of funky, looping beats and gruff, howling wolf-style vocals, most predominantly from goat voice star Malantini. With a sweet track by Graceland collaborators Lady Smith, Black, and Bazo, which is Nancy and Molly, this badass joy needs no translation. If you're unfamiliar with the music of South Africa, then this is going to be an interesting dive into South African music and the different styles of music that were popular in Johannesburg and Durban. This album is also very interesting in that it is a compilation album from a variety of different artists who were popular back in the day. One of the most predominant artists that at least American culture knows about is Ladysmith Black Mbazel, who is featured as an artist and worked with Paul Simon on the album Graceland. Now, there's some controversy when it comes to Graceland as an album itself, and also the injection of African music into the American mainstream scene, especially when it comes to Graceland, because people aren't quite sure when they first listen to it what the history behind it is. There's a great article from 2016 entitled Paul Simon's Graceland, 10 Things You Didn't Know. And this article sort of breaks down a little bit about different things you might not exactly know about Graceland and sort of how Paul Simon heard the music from South Africa, which during the time was in an apartheid country. And so the the international relationship between the United States and South Africa was very contested. And it's a very complicated history that I personally do not know all the details of, and going through that right now would be an entirely different podcast all into itself. So I highly recommend doing your own research about apartheid South Africa and learning about the work of various artists who were there. But the article about Paul Simon's Graceland from Rolling Stone gives a very interesting look into how this album sort of came about the work that Paul Simon had to go through in order to not only be able to travel to and from South Africa, from the United States, but also why exactly he wanted to be working with these artists and what it meant to 
bring this music to the mainstream. I'm going to personally say that I really do like Graceland as an album, and I don't necessarily see it as a piece of cultural appropriation. I think what's interesting about Graceland is that it's a collaboration between various artists from different backgrounds to bring something unique to music that otherwise wouldn't have existed without that collaboration. And if it did, that would be because of people taking the music and thus having cultural appropriation. I'm sure that during the 80s and 90s, once this music sort of like hit the mainstream or like people started becoming more aware of it, I think maybe cultural appropriation did occur and like the different musical instruments or the different beats or something that is tied to this culture significantly was stripped away from those artists and used in other people's music. But I think it's also very important for us to acknowledge that culture and to understand a little bit about that music in order to understand why it might be cultural appropriation. Anyway, I'm going to get off my soapbox for a second. So, I will also say that I feel like I came at a disadvantage to it. So, for a majority of this podcast, I've been using Spotify. Spotify sometimes has the feature where if you're on mobile, the screen will have a section for behind the lyrics or we'll have the genius lyrics so you can scroll through the lyrics as they pop up or as a singer keeps singing them so you can follow along with the song this album does not have any lyrics on spotify the this album doesn't have any lyrics on genius i cannot find any lyrics to this album which is quite frankly bizarre seeing as this album is from 1985 and has been on um lists such as Rolling Stone. So I feel like I'm coming at a disadvantage from it. I can only talk about how I feel about it and my interpretation of it. But please know that I feel like I'm coming at a disadvantage from this. If I sound like a white girl who doesn't know anything about this, it's because I am. (laughs) So if anybody has a physical copy of this CD, or a vinyl, and you have the liner notes, if there is any way that there are lyrics on those liner notes, or those there are lyrics in English in any way, I would actually love to sit down and read these songs, and I would love to get to know about what the singers are saying, because for the most part, I don't know, and I really did like this album a whole lot. I liked being reintroduced to Lady Smith Black Mbazo. And this just kind of solidified that, like, any work that Paul Simon may have had, it doesn't compare to the real thing. It doesn't compare to the work that the artists that he collaborates with do. Because there's something so beautiful about this music. And it is... It just feels like happiness caught in a bottle. The sound is like, it is jaunty. It is, it just makes me happy. I don't know what the lyrics would be. I know there's there's a lot of songs out there that like have very kind of happy sounds to them or whatnot. 
and they have depressing as shit lyrics. But not knowing the lyrics, I can say that this sounds really fun. Some songs that I would suggest taking a look at would be And Then Jenny Womkulo by Melantini Ninten Zombies in Kishneo and the Mekono Seayo Band is a really fun song. So is Sabe Bomba by Undagatela Shange Menjaha. What it reminds me of is sort of a stereotypical country song, mostly because of the fiddle instrument that I believe I'm hearing throughout this song. It sounds very fun and very danceable too. The next one, Sini Lindau by Gainsley Afiza No Cambola Thaliso is a jaunty kind of song, and I love the accordion. I'm not quite sure if it is an accordion, but it reminds me of an accordion. It's just a really fun song. And then finally, Nancy Imali by Lady Smith Black Mbazo feels like a, almost, not a gospel song, but you know, gospel songs are meant to be very sort of uplifting of the audience, and the the arrangement of voices is just so beautiful and so warm that it makes the work on Grace Smith look childish. Like, Paul Simon ain't seen nothing when it comes to Lady Smith Black and Basil. So, would I say that the indestructible beats of Soweto is the greatest album of all time? I would say so. You know, not having the lyrics in front of me is definitely a disadvantage, but I would say that there's something there. And I would definitely want to look into these artists a lot more. I'm so thankful that this is put on the list, greatest albums of all time, because I think it's important to not just look at like American rock music, but also see where American rock music gets influenced by and how those cultures play a part into it. And just hearing this music, people were very inspired by this music. And so I think it's really important to include this album because, you know, we can't just have rock music just be full of white dudes, you know, and all these artists deserve to have more recognition to them. And that's, that's all I have to say about that. So we're not done yet. As we all know, we have, we have two more albums to get through in this afternoon and this recording. And the next album on the list is the White Stripes, White Blood Cells from 2001. Now this album is only on the 2012 list. This is what Rolling Stone had to say about the album. The third album by Jack and Meg White was the right dynamic for a mainstream breakthrough. Jack's Detroit Roadhouse fantasies, Detroit Garage rock razzle, and busted love lyricism, as well as Meg's toy thunder drumming all peaked at once. So, the White Stripes have another album, and that one is called Elephant, which I will cover in the future, but just know that it is listed as 449 in 2020 and 390 in 2012. So this album 
is rock with a hard R. This music just, like, it's very theatrical, it is very loud, it is in your face, like, there is no way to escape the sound of this album. Like, it is bombastic. And I'm not sure if I quite necessarily like this album. Um, despite all of the great sound and the technical elements and the instrumentation, there's something that feels lacking in it. Or maybe I just don't like Jack White singing. There's also that. There's a lot of great moments in this album, like Hotel Yorba and Little Room, a great head-pounding song. Although Little Room is a very, very short song. The song We're Going to Be Friends is a really cute song. I imagine it, like, children singing it. And that is kind of the tone that Jack White kind of goes for, at least in, while working in the White Stripes. Like, their tone is just kind of childish. Not immature, I would say, but it's just like, it's just, it sounds like adults just trying to have fun in a way that children would have fun with instruments. There's a great YouTube episode about the little songs, or the songs that the White Stripes have that are entitled Little Noun, Little Blank. There's this YouTube channel called Middle Eight that does a breakdown of the White Stripes' songs that start with Little, and it's called The White Stripes' Little Secret. If you want to check out this, I highly recommend it because this YouTuber goes into way more detail and gives a fuck about the White Stripes way more than I can. That being said, there's a couple of songs that are like, this is kind of fun. I feel like there's a lost potential in the album, especially when it comes to the song I Think I Smell a Rat. Like, the production for I Think I Smell a Rat is very fun. It could go places. Like, I could see, like, I could feel it getting somewhere, and it was a really cool place, but then the lyrics I wish were just a little bit better. And speaking of lyrics, there's there's two lyrics that really kind of stuck out of my head in this album. I forget what song this is from, but it can't be loved for there is no true love, which is very sad. Also the lyric, I wish we were stuck up a tree, is honestly such a mood right now, but also ties back into sort of the childish imagery that the White Stripes are going for. <laughs> I Can Learn reminds me of Breaking the Girl by the Red Hot Chili Peppers. Now, I don't know when the Red Hot Chili Peppers wrote Breaking the Girl or when it was released, so one could have been inspired by the other. I'm more familiar with Breaking the Girl and the Red Hot Chili Peppers than I am with I Can Learn. The finale and the final song on this album takes also a different turn than the rest of it. There's a piano now for the finale, which we didn't really hear all too much in the album. And Meg White is also featured on the final track, and I think that's a really important detail to have because, you know, we talk about Jack White, and we talk about, like, him as a guitarist, and, like, don't get me wrong, he is a great guitarist, but, you know, the White Stripes wouldn't be anything without Meg White and without her drum set. And to hear her be a part of the last number, I think, is really important because it shows her off in a position that she's not normally in. Like, we don't hear her too much behind a microphone, but her presence is still necessary to acknowledge because she's a fantastic musical artist, and I, I don't know if there's a devout following of Meg White as there is of Jack White. So 
Those are just my thoughts. And then finally, we have Public Enemies, Yo, Bum Rush the Show from 1987, which was listed in 2003. Now, this album in particular is not listed on any future lists, but there are two other albums by Public Enemy that are included in future lists and in different places that I want to talk about. So there is Fear of the Black Planet, which is number 176 in 2020. It's number 302 in 2012 and number 300 in 2003. And the album It Takes a Nation of Millions to Hold Us Back, which is number 15 in 2020 and number 48 in 2012 and 2003. So these guys are really important and I know that they are very important. However, I also don't know all that much about them, but having listened to Outcast and Equemini, I think it's very important to get an understanding of who Public Enemy is because they are very early rappers and this album, Bum Rush the Show, it feels very important to understand the genesis of rap as a genre and also as a way people made music. I think it's important to listen to Public Enemy, especially to this album, because this is more freestyle rap. The lyricism isn't necessarily the biggest draw for me, but the way that the guys are able to rap over a beat and also to keep the flow going with their lyricism is more important because rap was still, I think, from my very limited knowledge about them, rap was made where you would be using a turnstile and you would be scratching your own vinyl and creating the music yourself. And whatever you did over those beats and over those scratches that was your music. And so, you know, you only had your chance of really leaving an impression when you did battles. There isn't quite a, the same production quality as in Outcast's Equemini. Like, those guys, I could tell they, like, sat down and they, like, they really wrote out everything that they wanted to say and had multiple times to say it and, you know, had a whole team to build up the sound of what they wanted to say. Whereas Public Enemy, I'm not exactly sure if that's the same thing, you know? It feels older than Equemini and Outcast, and it feels just a little bit unpolished, but that doesn't mean that it's bad at all. Don't, don't get me wrong, like, this is a really interesting album. Some moments that I think are really interesting our sophisticated bitch has a great guitar line in it. Also, the way he says sophisticated is it's an interesting way of saying that word. The lyric that I took away from this album was I'll be the the burger, you can be the bun girl from Time Bomb. That just like <laughs> I was like, okay, okay my guy. I mean I'm not sure if that's clever, and if that's the best you can come up with, that's fine too, you know? You were trying something. The song that I, that, like, could be the blueprint for, like, how production on a song was going on, or the way that rap could go, 
was the song Right Starter in parentheses, Message to a Black Man, because that song just keeps building and build and gets bigger and bigger and more complex. So like the production behind that is awesome. And that is definitely a standout song for me. And the album ends in an interesting way. No one raps during the final song. So the beats and the mixing and everything else speak for themselves. And I think that's a really interesting way of ending the album, especially when it comes to rap. Because, like, as much as, like, everyone has taken their stand and has, like, at some point or another grabbed the mic to rap about whatever they're saying or whatever the situation is, I think it's also important for us to hear the music behind what they're saying and just to showcase that, like, this music is as essential to their identity as much as the words and the lyrics are. So I thought that was a really cool album, and I'm really looking forward to Fear of a Black Planet, and It Takes a Nation of Millions to Hold Us Back. I don't know where Bum Rush the show is in terms of Public Enemy's career, but I look forward to hearing more from them. So, in comparison to everything, I would say that the album that would be considered a greatest of all time when comparing the indestructible beats of Soweto, White Blood Cells, and Yo Bum Rush the Show, I would have to give it to the indestructible beats of Soweto. Now, we're going to do something a little bit different. So, since you lovely listeners have been around for four episodes now, you have heard what albums I think would be considered the greatest of all time. So, now's the time where I'm going to start ordering them into where I put them on an imaginary list. We don't have numbers yet, mind you, because we still have a lot of albums to get through. So, out of Touch by Eurythmics, Live in Cook County Jail by B.B. King, and Suicide by Suicide, and now finally, The Indestructible Beats of Soweto, The Order of Operations, and the albums that I would say from top to bottom are Live in Cook County Jail by B.B. King, Touched by Eurythmics, The Indestructible Beats of Soweto by various artists, and finally, Suicide by Suicide. So, thank you very much. I hope you enjoyed this episode, and DJ, let's drop that track. Goat or Go is a podcast created and hosted by me, Wendy Kay. I also edit the podcast. Original artwork is by Paige A. Special thanks to the entire Rolling Stone magazine writing team. Without you, there wouldn't be this podcast. Follow the podcast on social media, Goat or Go Pod. If you want to support the show on Patreon, link is in the show notes. Thank you so much, music lovers. Keep on listening, and I'll see you next week.